Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Today, we start a brand new series that I'm really excited about jumping into. And it's actually a bit more of a continuation of a series we just concluded. Um, If you've been with us for the last eight weeks, you know that we just finished up a series on Easter morning called The Great I Am, where we spent eight weeks looking at the statements Jesus made about himself in the book of John, all starting with those two words, I am. Am. And uh, as we concluded that series last week, I encourage you, if you haven't checked it out, go to the podcast, go to the YouTube. It was such a formative series in our church, and I really want to encourage you to get all the, the content in your heart, because I think it'll change your perspective about Jesus. But now that we have spent some time talking about the statements Jesus made of himself, we are going to move into the natural progression of his conversations in the Gospels and begin to talk about the things he says of us. In addition to some I am statements, Jesus made a number of you are statements, speaking about us, his followers, those that would call upon his name, all of which being statements of identity, statements that he speaks out over us. And so starting today and taking us all the way up to Pentecost Sunday, we are going to be looking at some of these statements in the scriptures and asking ourselves, do we align with what Jesus is saying about us? Uh, For that, we are going to title this chat in the form of a question, and uh, here's the series. We're calling it, Who Am I? Who am I? Come on, turn to someone next to you, even if you don't know them, and just ask them, Who am I? Who am I? Who do you say I am? If you're single, come on, you're sitting next to somebody right now. I teed you up, baby. You're the angel. You fell from heaven. You've been flying around my mind all day. Okay, yeah. I'm just here to serve. Who am I? Who am I? We actually, we had a creative meeting at our house trying to figure out how to title this, this series. And uh, I really wanted to go kind of the juvenile Pee Wee Herman route. And no, some of you have no idea who that is. But he used to say, I know you are, but what am I? And I wanted to go that route with it in light of the last series, but they thought that was childish. And then my wife, who is carnal, thank you, Robin, uh, wanted to quote SNL. Some of you remember this. Uh, it was uh, the Boston Teens. Uh, the, it was like, no, you are. No, you are. Jimmy Fallon and Rachel Dratch. Anyone? Do you know that one? Okay, you guys all just watch The Chosen. That's cool. That's awesome. Um, but we, uh, we went with the responsible route, and we titled it with a question, Who Am I? And today we're going to answer that with the first of these you are statements that Jesus makes, found in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. This is right after Jesus introduces his greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And after he's given the Beatitudes, he gets into the first of our statements in verse 13, which reads like this. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. There is the first one. You are the salt of the earth. Short verse, but loaded with a ton of application for us. If we are willing to do the work and mine and dig it out, just like you'd have to dig out some salt, if we're willing to dig up what Jesus is saying here, I think we're gonna find there's some major application for our lives. So here's what I'd like to do. I wanna pray, and then we're gonna talk about why Jesus tells you you're supposed to be so salty this morning, all right? Let's pray and we'll get into it. Uh, Holy Spirit, speak to us. Thank you for the presence of Jesus that is among us today. Thank you that, God, you, you drew every single one of those in the room this morning to this place in this moment, because you wanted to speak to us. No one is here by accident. 
And so right now we open up our hearts, we open up our minds to receive from you, and we ask that the truth of your word would be received and owned by each of us so that we can leave this place transformed today. In Jesus' name, and the church said amen. Amen. Who am I? Who am I? I think that that question is perhaps one of the most important questions you are ever going to have to answer on this side of eternity. Uh, Second only perhaps to the question of who is Jesus, because ultimately that question determines where you will spend your eternity. But this is a close second. Who am I? And the reason I believe that's such an important question is because of a thesis I have presented a number of times from this stage, which I will present again this morning because it applies to the content we're going to be discussing. And after 15 years of ministry, I have seen this principle play out time and time again in the lives of people that we minister to. And and so if you're taking notes, I want you to write this thesis statement down because you're going to be using it a lot during this series. I believe that ultimately you will live according to your perceived identity. You will live according to your perceived identity. In other words, your actions are ultimately the byproduct of the way you see yourself. I've seen this play out time and time again in the lives of people. If you believe the lies that the enemy speaks over you, if you believe the whispers from the accuser of the brethren and the one that wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life, lies like you are worthless, you are a failure, you are what you've done, that that you are good for nothing, you are unworthy of love and unworthy of affection, that there's no future for you, there's no hope for you. You are what broken people have said about you. You are who your society defines you as. You are what your broken past speaks about you. If you believe all of those lies, they will inevitably begin to materialize in your actions. You will live according to those lies. Your life will be an endless downward spiral of self-fulfilling prophecy where you're unfulfilled, ashamed, feeling guilty all the time, never laying hold of what God has for you because that's who you believe you are. But conversely, if you believe what God says about you, if you believe what the word of God speaks over you, that you are loved and forgiven and blessed and highly favored, that you are the head and not the tail, that you are above and not beneath, that you are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, that you are victorious, you are kings and priests and heirs to an eternal inheritance. If you believe these things, then they will begin to materialize in your actions. You will live according to the way you see yourself. It is an unavoidable principle and you see it in the lives of individuals. And it's important that we keep this principle, this thesis in mind as we begin to go through some of these teachings because apart from that conviction, much of what we're going to discuss could feel like a shallow attempt at behavior modification or lifestyle alteration, some prescriptive method where we do this and then God approves us and God loves us and he accepts us and only if I do X, Y, and Z can I really be a part of the community of believers, but nothing can be further from the truth. Let me just say emphatically, Jesus cannot love you any more than he loves you in this moment, regardless of what you did when you, before you walked into this room, period. He loves you with an unending love. However, these statements he makes over us are important to tune our ears to because it is the creator of your life speaking identity over you, knowing that if you see what he sees, it will transform the way that you live. Because we're going to all live according to our perceived identities. So with that understanding, let's begin to unpack this first statement Jesus makes about us. He says in Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt. You are the salt of the earth, which at first doesn't feel like a very flattering statement, right? 
They're like, cool, thank you, Jesus. I am the little white grains left behind after the evaporation of ocean water. Thank you for the compliment. Wouldn't recommend that as a pickup line as you find someone around the room, all right? Doesn't seem very flattering, but what might feel like a really lame compliment is actually an incredible statement of value when you understand what Jesus is saying here. In biblical times, salt was an incredible, incredibly valuable commodity. In fact, uh, our word salary, it comes from the Greek word salarium, which means to barter with salt, because in biblical times, the Roman soldiers were often paid in bags of salt. It was such a valuable commodity in, the, in their society that at the conclusion of their shift, they would literally get bags of salt as compensation, which is where, by the way, we get the term, are they worth their salt? You're welcome. Useless information on a Sunday morning. But the reason salt was so valuable in their culture is because it had a number of different uses or applications. Uses that Jesus would have been aware of as he used this analogy, and his hearers would have been aware of so they could understand how to apply what he was saying. However, salt looks a little different in our culture than it did in theirs. And so what I'd like to do in our remaining moments together, if I could, is look at four very specific functions of salt in biblical times, because when we understand what salt was used for, we can begin to apply the truth of what Jesus is saying here to our modern lives. So for all the note takers, you're welcome. I love you. I see you. I bless you with four points today. All right. Not my normal mode of operation, but we're going to go for it today. Number one. The first function of salt in their society was preserving. Salt was used as a preservative. Uh, probably no surprise, but in biblical times, there were no refrigerators, there were no freezers to preserve food. And so if somebody killed an animal and was unable to eat the entirety of that animal in a single sitting, they would need to find something to preserve the meat in order to eat it again. It was either that or become a vegan, which in biblical times was a sign of weakness. I'm just kidding. That's not true. That's bad theology. <laughs> Someone's like, oh, okay, yeah. It's not true. I'm sorry. I love all my vegan friends in the room. Jazzy, I see you. I love you. Yeah, yeah, I got you, girl. Jesus didn't eat meat. I'm just, or he didn't eat just vegetables. He ate some meat. So, you know, it's, I'm just throwing that out there. I'm just trying to be like Jesus. <laughs> so they understood in their culture that if you applied salt to raw meat, that it could be preserved. It would keep the meat from being affected by the outside elements and preserve the integrity of the food. And so Jesus, being aware of this reality, he begins to speak about us calling us salt. He says, in the same way that salt has the capacity to act as a preservative, to preserve what is good and extend its life, so you believers, you followers of mine, you actually have the ability to be a preservative in your societies, to preserve what is good and prolong its existence even in the most wicked of cultures. Quite literally, what Jesus is asserting here is that something as seemingly insignificant as your physical presence makes a massive difference in a city. Your presence really does matter. And we see this all throughout the scriptures. Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 29, he said, when the righteous increase in a city, it is blessed. But when the wicked increased, that city begins to crumble. 
We see back in the book of Genesis, Abraham is bartering with God over the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, Lord, if there's only a few righteous people there, will you preserve the city and keep it from destruction? And the Lord says, yes, even for a few, I will preserve that city and not destroy it. Fast forward into the, uh, later in the book of Genesis, uh, God preserves an area called Goshen within Egypt because the righteous people live there even though the plagues are taking over the Egyptians. Second Chronicles 5, or excuse me, 7, says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and I will come and heal their land. He did not say, if all people humble themselves, if all people pray. He said, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal the totality. I will preserve the totality of their land. Time and time again, scripture suggests and history will prove that the presence of righteous people in a city matters. The presence of those who are filled with the spirit of Jesus makes a massive difference on the moral climate of a city. And this is why, whether you like that I pray this way or not, it doesn't matter to me because they're my prayers and I'm going to pray as I want to. I pray that the righteous people of San Francisco would stay in this city. Your presence matters here. I pray that those who call this place home or Epic Church home or Experience Church home or or Hillsong Church home or Reality Church home, that the people who are filled with the Spirit of God would not flee San Francisco because this city needs some salt. I, I pray the same prayer of Isaiah chapter 62 that you would commit yourself to this city like a young man commits himself to his bride in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. Till death do you part, you would say, I'm planting myself in this city because I know that my presence matters here. I make a difference in the culture of my community because I'm physically present. I pray that you would not flee for more morally or politically aligned climates. and You would not find places that, that feel like they would be a bit more affordable and more enjoyable for your kids, but you would say, you know what? I know that she isn't the prettiest girl sometimes, but I'm gonna commit myself to this city because I believe that God is going to do something by my very presence in San Francisco. We need some salt in our city. Because listen, God's not done with San Francisco yet. No, mark my words, there will be a revival of souls in this city that eclipses everything it has ever seen before. I'm sick and tired of going and looking backwards at the Jesus movement days and saying, well, wasn't it great what God did back then? Our best days are not behind us. Our best days are in front of us. He will pour out his spirit. Thousands will come to know him and the reputation of our city will change on an international scale. It will be known for a move of God and not a den of wickedness, but that's gonna take some salt. It's going to take some people that say, I'm planted here. I'm not, I'm not going to disappear like everybody else, but I'm planted here because my presence matters. I'm a preserving agent in my society. So salt was used as a preservative. Uh, secondly, number two, salt was used for the purpose of healing. Purpose of healing. Um, many of you have probably heard this term before. Uh, the term is, it's like salt in a wound. Everyone heard that before? Now, in our culture, that is used as a, with a predominantly negative connotation. If someone is already in a, a compromised state, then someone does something or say, uh, says something to them in that compromised state to hurt them even further. It's said to be like putting salt inside the wound. 
But while that might be negative in our culture, in biblical times, if somebody was wounded, they would be begging for some salt. And here's why. They understood in their culture that salt had the ability to assist in the healing process. Uh, the source of all wisdom and truth, WebMD, uh, says it like this. Saline is commonly used in wound care because it creates conditions which make it difficult for bacteria to grow, therefore preventing wound infection. Successful wound healing occurs when you reduce wound contamination and minimize tissue injury. Uh, pay attention to that underlined portion. Conditions which make it difficult for bacteria to grow. So it isn't necessarily that salt has the ability to heal in and of itself, but salt has the ability to create an environment where healing is possible. Salt has the ability to keep bacteria at bay, and because it keeps certain things out, it can assist in the healing process. So when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, he is not saying that we have the ability to heal in and of ourselves. Let's be clear, Jesus and Jesus alone can heal, okay? We have a role to play, we pray, we ask, we seek, we knock, we believe, we anoint with oil, we pray the prayer of faith as it says, and lay hands on the sick in James chapter five, we do our part, but at the end of the day, Jesus and Jesus alone can heal somebody's body, can heal somebody's cancer, can heal somebody's blood disorder, only Jesus can do those things. However, if we are salt, then according to Jesus, we actually have the capacity to create environments where healing is possible. We have the ability to create an environment where the one who can heal is not impeded by some other stuff, but can he, he can flow freely in that environment to address the wounds of the broken in our midst. In case you're not mopping up what I'm spilling, let me just come out and say it. This one, this you are statement is all about the church. This is about the gathering of the saints, all the salt shakers in the room today. This is about us. If we are salt, then this, our gathering is supposed to be a bacteria-free zone. And I'm not talking about masks and gloves and sanitizer. I'm talking about this should be a space that is free of gossip and slander and backbiting and immorality and abuse, infidelity dehumanizing people, self-promotion, all the bacteria that's out there in our world should not be allowed over the threshold of the church because we're supposed to be a place that is creating an environment where people can begin to heal. Not just for the salt shakers in the room, but predominantly, arguably, for the people that aren't even in this room yet. Those who've been broken and wounded and messed up out there because of messed up people, when they walk over the threshold of the door of the church, they should find a place where they can heal. It's been said the church should be a hospital for the sick and not a museum for the saints. This was never supposed to be a place where the already healed people all get together and high five and celebrate their healing. Isn't life great while they collect dust behind glass? This was supposed to be a place with doors wide open to their communities so that the broken can walk in and find healing and life for their wounds in Jesus. That's the goal. But sadly, sadly, that has not been everyone's experience. Sadly, many people have walked into churches hoping to find a hospital, but instead have found a museum. They found a 
dusty collection of old saints sitting in their protected glass, basking in their own bacteria, incapable of addressing the wounds of the broken. They came looking for a hospital, but there was no salt in the sanctuary. And if that is your story, let me just take a moment here in this sermon to, to address wounds and hurts. If, if you've walked into a church and you've not found the healing that you thought you'd find there, can I just say, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. In fact, if that's been your experience in this house, if, if you've been wounded by somebody here, if you thought you were gonna get the encouragement and the affirmation and the wound care that you desperately needed, but instead you were met with some other stuff, I'm sorry. Uh, that's not our heart. Hurt people, hurt people. Wounded people, wound people. Sometimes you can walk into a church and actually walk out even more wounded than when you came because the very people that were supposed to be protecting you were the ones engaging in all the garbage that caused you to come fleeing to the hospital in the first place. And I'm sorry if that's your story. Man, I can even just feel this in the room right now. I'm sorry. And I would love to tell you that everyone in this room is perfectly healed up and healthy, ready to address wound care, but that's just not the case, friends. Often, many of us are just sitting in the same waiting room in the hospital as you are, trying to find the healing that we so desperately need for our wounds. So I'm sorry. But lest that apology feel like an excuse, let me follow it up with a commitment. While we may not be for perfect, and we will never be perfect, because church is not a place for perfect people, I will say this. As long as we're the pastors of this house, and as long as the leadership team remains intact and our integrity remains intact, we are going to do everything within our power to become the hospital that God has called us to be in the west side of San Francisco. We will do everything within our capacity to do that. We will be a house where when people walked in, they are loved and not rejected, where they are honored and not dishonored where they are respected regardless of their background and given a chance to find Jesus, where there is patience and not rushing in the process. Hurry up, get your act together because we remember how patient God was with us in that process. And when we walked in wounded, he took his time to address our situation. So may we do the same for those who walk into these doors. We will become the hospital that Jesus has called us to become. And all the salt shakers said, amen. <laughs> That's who we will be. That's who we will be. So salt was used for preservation. Salt was used for healing. But number three, perhaps most obvious in both their culture and ours, salt was used for the purpose of flavoring. Flavoring. I think most of us would agree some things are just better with salt. Right? Especially the Brazilian in the front row that... Eats a lot of salt, yes. If you've ever been to a chawascaria, they like their salt there. Some things are just better with salt. Butter's good. Butter with salt is better. Chocolate is good. Come on, somebody. Chocolate with some salt is better. Caramel, caramel, I don't know the right way to say it, is good. With salt, it's a little bit better. Margaritas, 
I love the collection in our room. Some are like, oh my God, did he just say that? Other ones are like, woo! Is it happy hour yet? <laughs> Freak someone out and serve those on the porch instead of coffee one day, see what happens. What was I saying? Salt is, is it's better. Pick your food, popcorn, french fries, steak, chicken, pork. It's all good. It's better with some salt. And as simple as this sounds, what Jesus is attempting to convey in this analogy is that you, as salt, should be making things better. That those who call themselves believers, as simple as that application might sound, our job is to make things better. Uh, the, the prophet, Michael Jackson, he said it like this. <laughs> Heal the world, make it a better place for you and... Oh, come on, what church am I a part of? You don't know Michael Jackson? <laughs> and the entire... Thank you. Okay, I got, I got a little lighter out. There we go. Yeah, that's our job. When people encounter us, they should be getting a taste of something better. A taste of Jesus. One theologian said it like this. Christian's job is to be the kingdom condiment to their world. I love that line. We're supposed to make this place taste a little bit more like Jesus. So to that end, let me ask you a confronting question as I do every single week. What is better because you are there? It is a good question. Thank you for affirming me, babe. What is better because you're there? Is your workplace better because you're there? Remember, we're talking about the flavor of Jesus. Is your school better because you are there? Is your home better because you are there? When you walk in the threshold of your doorway, does the environment improve because someone who tastes like Jesus just walked in the door? Is it better because you're there? Because if not, we got a problem on our hands. If you aren't making things better, then we're not being the salt we're supposed to be. And before you start beating yourself up and psychoanalyzing, like, why am I not making it better? I'm horrible. I just wanted to, I'm like, but hold on, just chill out. The way to resolve that tension is actually pretty simple. There's an answer to this question. And we just got to go back to salt. The only way salt makes something better is if it is appropriately applied. There is such a thing as too little salt, right? I don't know if anyone's spouse does this to them. Robin does this to me occasionally. I'll be in the other room and she'll be making a soup in the kitchen and she'll call me in and hand me a little ladle with some soup on it. And she'll go, can you taste this? Does it feel like it needs a little bit more salt? What she's asking is, is, is it too bland? Does it need some more spice to bring the flavor up to par? So there's such a thing as too little salt. But there's also such a thing as too much salt. Unless you're my kid, Livy, who apparently just licks salt and eats it straight out of the salt shaker. Anyone else's kid do that? Is my, okay, a few of us. Apparently not very many people's kids. Our kids have problems, all right? We need to <laughs> seek counsel. They're sodium deficient, I guess. But, but there is such a thing as too much salt. We've all taken a bite of a steak or tofu or an impossible burger or, you know, whatever. give it a break, Tim. I know, okay. <laughs> just, did you just do this? <laughs> Come on, Jazzy. I love you. We employ you. Okay. Just kidding. We've all taken a bite of a piece of meat, a steak that is too salty, and your, your lips kind of pucker, and, and, and you reach for the water 
because too much salt will leave you thirsty. And as it is for the soup and it is for the steak, so it is for the saint. There is such a thing as too much flavor and there is such a thing as too little flavor. If we're supposed to be the flavor of Jesus in our world, we can be a little extra or we can be not enough. When, when there's not enough salt, we leave the environments we visit bland. We taste like everything else. We live like everybody else. We share the convictions of everybody else. And therefore, we taste like everybody else. And when we leave, people are still left wondering, what does Jesus taste like? They never get to taste and see that he is good. Because, man, we're shying away from being salt. But there's also such a thing as too much salt. When your zeal for truth and your desire to tell everybody what the word of God says about their situation makes you tone deaf or incapable of contextualizing your faith, then people get a bitter taste in their mouth of the church and they pucker up a little bit and go, ah, I don't think I like that because all you gave them was a mouthful of salt. Like, I don't think I'm interested. And when all they get is salt, they stay thirsty. So to make sure that we appropriately apply our seasoning, if you will, to the world, uh, the Apostle Paul gives us some, some encouragement here with a very similar analogy to Jesus in Colossians chapter 4. He says this, Let your speech be always full of grace and seasoned with salt. Everyone say full. full. Everyone say seasoned. Full of grace, seasoned with salt. Full of grace, seasoned with salt. Don't mix those up. We've all met some Christians that have transposed those and given the team a bit of a bad name. I like to call them assaulters. You've met an assaulter, right? Oh my gosh. Uh, you drink what? Assaulted. You listen, I got in your car and I heard the music you're playing. How, I, assaulted. Did you see what she was wearing? I'm gonna go talk to her because no one needs to be dressed like that. Assaulted. You live with your boyfriend? Assaulted. <laughs> Get all zealous seeing people post things on social media, slide into the DMs, start making comments. Assaulted, assaulted, assaulted. We've <laughs> all met these people, right? You know what this is called? It's pride. You know what happens when you eat a bunch of salt? You get bloated. You get all puffed up. And we got a lot of bloated, puffed up Christians out there, prideful, throwing salt around, trying to tell people what's wrong with their life. Truth, 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 truth. But can we all just gear down for a second, please? Can we just think about it for a moment? Listen. <laughs> okay, we have a conversation. Just me and you in here. <laughs> hey. Let's not be surprised when people who don't know Jesus act like they don't know Jesus. Let's not be surprised when people who have only been following Jesus for a short period of time act like people who are new to the faith. Another prophet, Taylor Swift, haters gonna hate, players gonna play. 
Sinners are going to sin. It's just what they do. And if you think for a moment that your attempt to assault them with truth is going to bring them any closer to Jesus, my friend, you are mistaken because assaulting has never worked to bring people to faith and it never will bring people to faith. That's not how this thing is supposed to work. And BTW, let's remember how you were before you met Jesus. Let's remember how some of y'all still are right now. You're not all that great. Neither am I. All have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glorious standard. We are all jacked up people in process trying to learn how to become a little bit more like Jesus. So before we start throwing salt bombs at everybody, can we just remember what brought us to Christ in the first place and what continues to sustain us in him every single day? It is his grace. It is his love. It is his kindness. It is his patience. Romans 2.4, can't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Can't you see that it is love and it's his kindness that led you to a place of change? Come on, you received the grace of God, not buckets of salt when you came to Jesus, and freely you've received, so now freely you should give. Do we need some truth? Absolutely. We need some truth, but it's a seasoning. We're supposed to be full of grace. And if grace is what won us, then grace is what will win our world. We need to be full of grace. Repeat after me. I am here to give them a taste of grace. Yeah, that's what we're here for. Now, if it feels like I'm spending an improportionately amount of time, or improportionate amount of time on this particular point, it's because I am. And the reason I'm spending so much time on flavoring is because it is this aspect of salt's usefulness that Jesus begins to address in the final sentences of our scripture today. After telling his hearers that they are supposed to be like salt, look at what Jesus says again in verse 13. He says, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make salt salty again? No, it'll be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. This is such an interesting statement to me. I've struggled often as I've read this. In fact, my dad and I were talking earlier in the bathroom, not that that's important, um, <laughs> about how people have used this scripture to suggest that Jesus was not always telling the truth. And the reason they suggest that is because this statement is an impossibility. It's a scientific impossibility. Salt is a naturally occurring stable compound in our world. It is impossible for salt to not be salty. Salt by nature of what it is, will always remain salty. So it feels, at least at face value, like Jesus is offering a contradiction here. But let's take a moment and just consider, maybe, maybe what looks like a contradiction is actually the point. Maybe what Jesus is saying here is that just as it is impossible for salt to be unsalty, so it should be with believers. It should be impossible for followers of Jesus to not live like followers of Jesus. Just as unsalty salt is an oxymoron, so is an unchristlike Christian. If we're salt, we're going to act like salt. Back to our thesis for the day. You will live according to your perceived identity. If we hear what Jesus is saying and we identify with his statements, perhaps what he's suggesting here is that we cannot help but begin to act like he wants us to act. When we're in him, we become more like him. 
So, that tells me something. It tells me if, after hearing these thoughts and surveying the landscape of our lives, we find some impropriety here, we find that our lives are not aligning with these principles, it tells me that we don't really have an effort problem on our hands. This is not try harder, do better, become more like salt. Come on, Christians, do your job out there. It's not it. No, we have an identity crisis on our hands. We have forgotten who we are. And for any of us who might find ourselves in that space today, then I offer this final thought about salt. Something that maybe Jesus was hinting to that we gotta dig a little bit deeper to find, but something that addresses anyone who finds themselves not living as salt should live. Lastly, number four, in their culture, salt was used for remembering. Remembering. Uh, last scripture tucked away in everyone's favorite book, the book of Leviticus. Uh, for those who have forgotten who they are, here's what it says in Leviticus 2, and I'll invite the band to come with this. These are the words of Moses as he's speaking to the Israelites. He says, season all your grain offerings with salt to remind you of God's eternal covenant. Never forget to add salt to your offerings. Remember, remind, never forget. Moses is telling the people of God here in this passage to do something with their grain offerings, not for God's sake. It's not like God likes his offerings a certain way. You need to serve him the dish the way that he likes it. It's not it at all. He says, I want you to put salt on your offerings as a way to jog your memory, to remind you that God has made an eternal covenant with you. And what is that eternal covenant? It's the same thing we celebrated this last weekend. It's what Easter is all about. The eternal covenant is that Jesus gave his life so that all of us could be made right with God. That he lived a life none of us could have lived, died a death that all of us deserved, and offered us his life in exchange. No longer is our right standing with God based on our own merit or our own performance. It is based on the finished work of the cross. When the Father looks at you, he actually sees the blood of his Son. It says Jesus sat down with his disciples at the Last Supper, and was having a meal that they would have had for many, many years, 1400. But he begins to redefine the elements of that meal. He says he takes the cup and he holds it up and says, this wine, it represents my blood that's gonna be shed for you. And with this blood, I'm establishing a new covenant. No longer are you made right with God based on your performance, based on how you follow all the rules and check all the boxes. But just as this wine would spill out the side of the cup, my blood is gonna be spilled for you and it will write a new story. It will establish a new covenant that my blood will wash all your sins away and you will be made right with the Father. And then what did he say at the end? From now on, when you drink this cup, remember, remember, remember. To put it in context, all this chat about salt would have been a reminder to the people listening. And all this conversation about salt should be a reminder to those sitting in the room today. A reminder of the fact that Jesus paid the ultimate price for you, but also a reminder 
that you are not who you used to be, but that you have a new identity because of that covenant. You might've failed, but you are not a failure, my friend. You might've made some mistakes, but you are not a mistake. You might've committed the worst sin of your life last week, but you are not defined by that sin. God's grace is sufficient for you. His mercy is made new to you every single morning. And because of that covenant, you are loved, you are forgiven, you are blessed, you are highly favored, you are the head and not the tail, you are above and not beneath, you are victorious, more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, kings, priests, and heirs to an eternal inheritance. You are children of the Most High God. And your soul. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's not a standard to achieve. It's an identity statement. This is who you are. May you have ears to hear what the Spirit of God would speak over you today because when you know who you are, you will live accordingly. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for speaking to us in ways that, uh, that only a loving God can. Thank you that you did not come to beat us into submission or to abuse us until we were willing to follow all the rules. You came humbly. You came sacrificially. You came with love that is unmatched by anything or anyone in this society. God, we thank you that today, regardless of what we've said or done leading up until this moment, you still speak a word of identity over us. Thank you that we are loved. Thank you that we are forgiven. Thank you that we are the sheep of your pasture, those who can hear your voice. We receive every one of these statements today. We, we tune our ears to the words of our creator. And God, we ask that we would believe what you speak so that it will transform the way we live. Before we conclude, I wanna pray for one group of people, and that would be those in the room who would say, hey, Tim, um, I, I, I heard all the things you're saying, loved, forgiven, blessed, highly favored. I don't know that I would identify with those statements. Uh, and that's because I, I don't know that I'm in relationship with Jesus today. Those are only promises made to those who are, are submitted to him as king, have decided to follow him within their lives. And, Maybe that's a decision you've never made before. Maybe you've been at a distance from God for a long time and you know that you need to come back into relationship with him. Uh, before we conclude, I wanna make an invitation to pray a simple prayer with me and commit or recommit your life to Jesus. Here's another promise he makes to you in Romans chapter eight. He says that he's made a way for you to be adopted into him, adopted into that family. He doesn't ask you to force your way in he doesn't make you jump through a bunch of hoops and follow a bunch of rules. He just says, hey, I'll, I'll take you into my family this morning. You just gotta believe in me. And if that's you today and you, you would say, Tim, I need, I need to pray that prayer along with you. I'm gonna ask, because I do every single week without people looking around right now, would you just quickly lift up your hand and look at me and say, Tim, I need to pray that with you this morning. I'm giving my life to Jesus. Got you, man, right on. Yeah, I got you right there, awesome. Got you, cool, awesome. Hey, right on, bro, yeah, cool. Yes, oh, sorry, I missed that one, yeah. Yeah, yeah, got you over there, cool. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
All right, here's what we're gonna do. You know how we do it at the Father's house. We all pray with those that are praying today so they don't feel alone. So join me in praying with those making this decision. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you. Forgive me of my sin and help me to be your disciple from this day forward until I see you in heaven. In Jesus' name. Come on, amen, 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 amen. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.